This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz and Roni Abovitz. It's July 14th, 2023, and it's This Week in XR. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, good morning. Morning. It looks like the world is on strike. The world's on strike. And Charlie, I'm just noticing you are wearing an Express Mail t-shirt today, uh, which is one of those leading indicators of, you know, the amount of change in our world, right? So, uh, it's pretty- uh, yeah, it's true. Also, you know, just because they played such a big, Email. a big role in the 2020 election, they were highly, highly politicized. Mm-hmm. So I started wearing this t-shirt at that time in solidarity with mail carriers who, like most public servants, don't make enough money, but they make it up on the pension side. Uh, so if they live long enough, it was worth it to make no money for 20 years. If they stay long enough in the org, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, you know, writers have no such guarantees. Uh, if you don't work, you don't get health insurance. Uh, if you don't work, you don't uh, get your pension contribution. Um, so for a professional writer and a professional actor, your goal is to work as many days out of the month as you can. And it's not always under your control. And I think, you know, Roni and I started on this in the green room. A lot of what's going on is that the pie has gotten bigger. The studios are getting fatter. Um, but for writers and to a certain extent for actors, we can talk about the actor aspect. I think that's a little different than the writer aspect, but they both have the same source. Bigger pie, not getting bigger for people who are in the middle. And I don't, it's very complicated how you resolve that. And I, also, Roni, I'm interested in your view because um, you said it's coming from many different directions, including specifically with AI, which may be uh, perhaps a bit premature. No, and let me let me say this because I know Ted's uh, in that industry and, and I've always been adjacent and, and what I'm doing now is somewhat in it as well. Uh, look, I, I love great writers. I love all the writers and actors, but I think there's a realism that um, there are there are virtual worlds like Roblox and 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 Fortnite, which are just taking away audience. There's social media and things like TikTok and Instagram, uh, and and threads that are taking away audience. Streaming has changed the business model economics. The pandemic really hurt the whole uh, physical movie theater business. It's not what it was. Right. And then along comes on top of all of this, like you know AI systems which are doing a pretty darn good job and will just get exceedingly great at uh, reading and synthesizing every script and every book that ever came before. Uh, And we're only a certain number of years away. Like I think single digit years, not decades, you know, maybe, maybe it's 2028 or early 2030s where, you know, you'll have AI systems that write excellent scripts and it's freaking everyone out. And you have to think about other industries, right? Like the elevator operator, the, the, the human computers who work for NASA, no amount of strike would have saved their jobs. And I, you know, the reason I wanted us to talk about it is like, the strike is the old chess move. They need new moves. Hmm. Like all of these folks need to adapt. The, the ecosystem and environment's changing. 
you have to adapt and pick up new skills and understand how to play this environment. The environment is not going to stop changing. And a strike doesn't stop the ecosystem and ecology from changing. It, it, it's a temporary move, but the bigger move is like, how do I evolve as an actor, as a writer into becoming fluent with all these changes, adapt myself, make myself much more valuable. I feel bad for folks who can't do that, right? They can't adapt because, I mean, it's Darwinian, right? Evolution is cruel. Uh, and what we're seeing is technology is forcing a lot of evolutionary systems forward. If you don't believe in evolution, it's happening. Um, I, I mean, Ted, you're right in the middle of this. I don't know if you could talk about it at all, but like. Well, there are things that I certainly have to remain completely neutral on and support. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good party line for someone, as Charlie knows, who very often is on the edge of talking about stuff that will absolutely get me fired. In this case, I am, I'm actually very comfortable saying, you know, there are, there are very significant points on all sides of this equation. I think the thing for this podcast and this forum that our listeners would maybe be the most interested in terms of my perspective on this is the, the, the changes in technology underfoot that happen every generation. Um, there's sort of a split decision on this, right? And I'm curious where you guys fall on this. And maybe you fall on both because the, the, I fall on both is technology tends to be a democratizing factor, right? It allows, it gives more people of more socioeconomic uh, basis, a level of, of sameness, a level of connection. Well, that's, that's what's happened on TikTok. Right? Well, and even just with devices, right? Almost everybody on planet Earth, regardless of where you live on an right. economic- when I, entered, when I entered the film business, we did not have this much technology on the set. Correct. And, and, you know, the poorest countries in the world, the less poor countries in the world, to all the richest countries in the world, effectively have leveled the playing field with computer technology to a certain extent, right? Very much so that people that are living in India with very little income have smartphones. And we saw this in certain areas of the world where people had very, very little income, but they all had satellite dishes for a while, right? And they all had... Uh, uh, TVs in their homes. So that's a democratizing factor. But would you also say simultaneously that computer technology or the way that technology evolves also um, unlevels the playing field in terms of the economic pies of very lopsided organizations that are- The that power law. The power law. That's what you're describing. Yeah, for sure. So you might maybe talk a little more about that, Ronnie, because I think that's- Yeah, I, I, think, I think what people confuse- and, and unfortunately, these things happen simultaneously. Really perceptive, Ted, in this is the the technology becomes democratized. But those who can um, leverage its economic power and strategic power—that's a power law, mm -hmm. right? And the power curve is oh, like like basically sports is power law. The top athletes, so is music. You know, the top musicians take the huge disproportionate amount of of the revenue. Same thing with film, right? The top films take most of the revenue, and you have this like head, torso, and tail. The power law seems to be true across like nature, biology, mathematics. It keeps playing itself over and over again, where we confuse the democratization access of technology, uh, but we, we but it does not create a democratization of the distribution of economics. Economics almost always seems to go to the power law, uh, and that seems to be the, the 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 natural way of the world. And and that's why like when we tried systems like socialism or communism. We're trying to force the power law into something that seems unnatural to the human condition. Yeah, I think I, I always thought it was interesting to hear Jeff Bezos talk very publicly about without the internet, 
he would not be who he is. He would not have been able to create Amazon as the world's biggest bookseller and then expanded into the world's biggest seller of everything, right? You often hear Bill Gates talk about this too, that without the public internet, these companies and those leaders and that power law in action would not be where it is. So this gets into a little bit of a political dynamic, but you know, it was interesting when you asked the question of, if we as American citizens and whoever's listening to this around the world, whatever you pay in taxes because you helped this come to life, the internet was, you know, the public internet, right? It started as a government-based project, um, was something largely supported by, by our tax base. So the fact that people figured out how to capitalize on it outside of that tax base, and there is very little return back to the people that helped it start, meaning we all paid our taxes to do it, um, there's an interesting thesis that kicks around that everyone should be getting a return on that investment because you helped all of these companies that now live on the internet and profit from the internet today come into existence. And it wouldn't have happened without our tax base driving it, right? So should we all get a check every month from Amazon, Apple, Google, et cetera? Because what you're saying is that they've socialized all of the resources. So they've made the cost public, but the yes. profit has been private. Yes. And profit should be shared with the public. But on the other hand, the benefit has been shared. It drove prices down. Yes, it drove retailers out of business. That was going to happen eventually anyway, because it's an inefficient way of distributing goods and services. Yeah. So, um, uh, but it did change the economics of the country. It it had a you know a kind of uh, mercury effect where you know it, it took these big gobules uh, and turned them into lots and lots of little gobules. So there are all these smaller businesses that the internet enabled, uh, as well as social media. Again, products like TikTok and Instagram allowing people to create influencer businesses and sell those clothes and the, that merchandise that used to be sold uh, in stores because of the you know, trust they've built in their personal channel, right? Because there are now an infinite number of channels and you know, each one provides a minute of content a day. I mean, it's insane what really has happened to television and the way people choose to spend their leisure time. And I think that really is the big existential question behind these um, behind these strikes, which is, you know, how does Hollywood prevent, um, you know, this getting completely out of control and, and series basically going away, everything becomes a big event thing or reality TV? Where does that leave the actors? Yeah. If so you're going to be replaced by amateurs is right. what's going to happen. Right. So, so it's a uh, fascinating dynamic, right? Yeah, I mean, there is no end to this conversation. Uh, and so uh, thank you for getting it started, Roni. Let me hit the news real quickly, and then we have Sean Frame, uh, founder and CEO of Looking Glass, which makes a 3D display. They introduced at AWE, uh, you know, adding an AI-driven character to the display. Uh, so it'd be great to hear from him on how that's going. But they make their displays in Brooklyn. Uh, and they can't make them fast enough. So that, that right now it's mostly for professional use, but when you see it, you say, aha, there could be 3D without glasses, you know, 3D television. Uh, the big news this week, uh, which you can track down in my Forbes column or next Wednesday on AR Insider, uh, is uh, the launch of Threads, which has surpassed 130 million downloads. Uh, really, Twitter took it on the chin. Uh, lots of opinion about uh, how Threads uh, can sustain their Twitter clone. 
but even though it's missing some features like direct messaging, it's you know attached to Instagram, which you know has a billion and a half users. And, and they're gonna they're gonna forget. rapidly add to that, Charlie. Right? I mean, they're, they're yes. that's what Mark knows how to do best. He's really yes. good at. Yes. So I think Twitter took it on the chin, but then six days later, Elon launches X. Now he he said, I guess today on Twitter Live, he's going to take questions. So uh, we're about to learn a lot more. You know, he has said that he wants to turn Twitter into X and X would be like WeChat <clears throat> and everything app. So, uh, you know, I, I think this cage match is actually far from over. Uh, so great for us, great for news, uh, tech news hounds. Um, one story that I'm super excited about, Roblox, uh, Meta announced Roblox is ready to join uh, the Quest store uh, probably within weeks. There'll be a beta available uh, and uh, it's apparently an open beta. They've preceded it with content for VR. Um, no word on what the building tools look like or how the economy is going to work. But I mean, my guess is that they figured out how to way to a way to make it feel just like the Roblox that everybody loves. Uh, so uh, I'm excited to see that. Uh, Activision, uh, uh, Microsoft finally got its approval to acquire Activision, uh, making it the number three game company in the world. Uh, and then finally, the head of Google AR engineering left. I think this is, I know they bought, you know, recently bought Mira. I'm not quite sure what's uh, that's, that's it's Apple, Apple, Apple bought Mira. But it looks like they've killed their AR hardware project, yeah. which was related to the North technology. That they a, a little bird told me, Charlie, though, um, I won't source the bird, but what you read in the news and what's actually happening are not 100% aligned. Uh, it could be a piece of what was going on at Google got shut down, but I don't think what's behind the scenes is being shut down. They're just not well, talking. Well, I mean, they are continuing to work with Samsung and Qualcomm, but it looks like it's more on the OS side than the hardware side. But that's what you can read. That is what I can read. That's what you can read. That's what you can read. But I've heard there's more going on. Ooh, that's juicy. It is uh, juicy. <laughs> I can't say from where, but um, a, 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 an unnameable source is that there's more going on there. You guys keep secrets from me. It's it's like you think I'm going to write it down and talk about it. Well, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's admit Sean. We'll bring him in from from the uh, the green room. Here we go. A drum roll, please. We need some like transition music that we start. Coming, he's coming. Here he is. Sean, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Good. Hey, how are you? Do you do you know everybody on this call? Uh, I've never met uh, uh, most of these folks in person, but I know of all your work. And we definitely know of your product and use it from time Thanks. to time. Thanks. Thank you. Great greetings. Yeah, greetings. Big fans of all you guys. Awesome. Uh, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, so I saw you at AWE just a few weeks ago. So um, you, you got to uh, tell me how it's going with your AI character that you've trapped inside of the looking glass. Yeah, it's good. I mean, um, you know, we've always uh, sort of chased this idea of a holographic embodiment of AI. We did it years ago with IBM Watson and then Alexa, but none of the realism of those systems really matched the realism of holographic or light field representations. But now um, the, you know, GPT 3.5 and 4 definitely do. And so you have this little, these little characters 
made of lights that feel uh, real and alive because of the combination of those two things. And is that software available to people who own a looking glass? Uh, it is. It's called Light Forms, uh, Life Forms Made of Light. <laughs> and uh, it's available on our website at lookingglassfactory.com. People can um, just go and uh, download it and give it a give it a whirl. We only have a few characters up there now, but there'll be more that we roll out over the coming uh, weeks. I've always had a, a curiosity of your company and what was its mission, its desire to bring a device like this into the world? Like it's it's fascinating to watch something that kind of lives. I see it in art galleries. We used it at CES a number of years ago when we uh, did a, a project with Intel, where we did a, a Greece volumetric uh, project. And yeah. one of the ways we displayed it because it was volumetric capture was in a looking glass device, this sort of plexi box that mm -hmm. kind of at multiple layers, um, but I'm always curious what the what the motivation uh, to bring something like this into the world is. I mean, the dream of the hologram, which I think we all share to some degree, um, and uh, there there wasn't anyone else when we started Looking Glass almost ten years ago that was really um, commercializing a uh, computer controlled light field or holographic or volumetric or whatever the technology of choice was, uh, those types of interfaces that someone could use without a headset. And so we thought that the um, sort of shift to 3D would be incomplete if it only had um, if it only had headsets, AR and VR headsets, without headset-free um, displays and interfaces of some sort. And um, we all believe in the company that it's really the combination of these different 3D endpoints that will um, help to push forward that shift from 2D to 3D. And we're actually still the only group that has a commercial, commercially available group viewable um, headset free system on the market now. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. I think, are, are, are you a hardware engineer by background? What brings you to this world? How did, how did... Um, I did conventional holography um, when I was in high school. I was you know, just got obsessed with it. And my parents got me this little book called the Holography Handbook, which is kind of this classic for um, hologram nerds like me. And then when I was 13 or 14, my dad and I built a little um, little studio at the foot of my bed in Tampa, Florida, and made sort of the classic interference pattern holograms. I bought, you know, the cheap helium neon laser on eBay, and so on. Um, and so did that. But it you know, that's only a tiny piece of the dream of the hologram that we see in movies. It was just, you know, a little pewter Mickey Mouse uh, sort of laser photograph almost. Um, and then I went to MIT, studied physics, and then I took the hologram elective course that Steve Benton was teaching there. Um, this was a couple of years before he passed away. Um, folks who are in the hologram field, of course, know Steve um, Benton's work. Um, and yeah, so I was also surprised then that there actually weren't any practical um, computer controlled 3D systems that someone could use without a headset. And then fast forward 10 years, decided to start a company with some other folks that felt dissatisfied with that uh, current state of the world. So I just have one more question that I'm going to leave Charlie and Roni to ask some things that you may be too young to have seen this, but I'm very curious. I don't know how long it lasted in New York City. Did you ever get 
to the Holography Museum on Mercer Street in New York City or know of it because I went yeah. there a bunch of times and there were never a lot of people. He lives in New York there. City. Of course he went there. Yeah, of course I've been there. Doc, <laughs> Dr. Laser, Jason. Excellent, excellent, yeah, excellent. Right. Well, I actually have a great story about that. So um, uh, someone from our team wrote Jason, whose moniker online is Dr. Laser, and said like, hey, like uh, we're doing all this stuff in 3D. Um, Sean wants to come by. Um, and I was like, I guess I got to go now. And I showed up and there was a guy out front in front of this holographic museum um, working on the stoop, um, like cementing something. And he looked up at me and he said, don't look at me. And he ran into the, um, the studio and then he came back out in his lab coat and said, hello, I'm Dr. Laser. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is a great story. So how long has Looking Glass been making displays now? About eight years. And so we make, uh, there's a few displays on the market um, ranging from eight inches up to 65 inches. Um, and we make all the software that ties them together with the 3D workflows that people use in Unity, Unreal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and are, I mean, I assume like the ideal or, or target user would be like an animator working in 3D. Um, are you seeing uh, uptake in that industry or where, which industry, which vertical has really um, embraced the technology? I mean, definitely all 3D creators that use those types of tools like Unity, Unreal, Cinema 4D, so on and so forth. Anyone who knows what a 3D model is or is doing LiDAR scanning with their phones. Um, so those have been historically sort of our core audience. But now there's um, different groups, businesses um, that are using our systems. Pixar just showed um, some characters from Elemental in a couple of the medium-sized looking glasses as part of a press event. Um, Bulgari does a bunch of stuff with our systems and things like that. And eventually our goal is to bring these into the home so that everyone can use them. But that's still probably a few turns of the crank away. How how the sixty five inch is really expensive, right? I mean, it's tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you weren't a business, chances are you would not purchase one. And also, of course, it needs bespoke content. It's not like you're going to plug it into your cable TV. That's right. But it's uh, kind of the fundamentals of how the technology is put together really lend themselves to lends itself to leveraging existing supply chain. So all of our optics are built on um, uh, OLED or LCD back panels. So um, that's partly what's let us move very quickly to bring this, um, these different size systems, different variations of systems to market. And of course, we've got a bunch of stuff in the background that we're excited about coming out um, in the not so distant future. Sean, for the, for the optic nerd engineers who listen, and I don't know, maybe it's just me <laughs> who's a host on the show, but um, <laughs> what can you publicly talk about? Uh, Cause you, you understand the physics of holography. The differences between um, like a pure hologram that you make at like an MIT lab yeah. and what you're doing and where do you see the evolution of where you are going into like, because I've, I've got friends uh, making who are physicists trying to work on like what they call pure digital holography. Yeah. And there's a lot of like um, snobbery in the field. I'm just wondering <laughs> where, where are you on that chain of like purism versus like practicality and yeah, I mean, we're definitely kind of more on the practical side. Our systems are genuinely three-dimensional, you know, super stereoscopic. Multiple people can use them. So they're not um, 
2D tricks, which I think have their place, honestly, but that's not what we do. Um, we do genuine 3D interfaces, um, but uh, it's not a conventional uh, coherent light interference holographic system like the Mark II system that was uh, experimentally made at MIT, um, you know, that modulated sort of uh, very, very small um, pixels almost um, at the order of wavelength of light scale. Uh, so our system, while we call it holographic, because that's what the general audiences, um, or even folks in 3D land, not even general audience, folks in 3D land um, would look at our system and say, like, ooh, hologram. Um, that's, how, that's what we call it, but more technically, it's a light field display. And um, I think light field display as compared to volumetric display or as compared to like these electroacoustic holographic systems or uh, whatnot, it's almost definitely the future. Um, I think we've played a role in proving that. Um, and hopefully this is how it plays out over the next 10 or 20 years. But, um, you know, light field display, I think is the foundational um, uh, way forward for headset free systems because it can leverage existing supply chain. Um, it's something that uh, can scale very easily um, to different sizes. And it's already hitting um, sort of the acceptance criteria for brands like Pixar and Bulgari. And it's going to hit the acceptance criteria for consumers in the not too distant future too. So, so correct me if I'm wrong about this or the terminology or the, the way the technology works, because I've seen, just like I'm sure the three of us have all seen over the years, various forms of what they refer to as glasses-free 3D. Yeah. They all use some version of a lenticular style of how they move light around. So the simplest version of that is, you know, as kids in our generation, we all have these little spy rings that you could move from one side of your hand to another and it would show a different image. And that was basically just two facets. Yeah. And I remember Philips was doing some stuff with more and more facets and a few other technology companies, but ultimately they were kind of all the same thing. They were basically just moving things on a on a on a little sort of uh, diagonal axis and they would add more and more access to it but they tended to be very low density so you saw the dots and unless you were really in the sweet spot yeah. um, it would kind of undulate around and not work right and it was very sort of disturbing so it was an interesting kind of proof point um, and then i've also seen a use case where uh, now effectively 2d displays can use a camera to track one person. Yeah. And that actually is quite remarkable. I there mean, there are a lot of monitors like that that are right. being developed. I, again, like the looking glass, there are tens of thousands of dollars. And yeah. is, of course, it'll be accessible in, a, as you say, a few turns in the crank. And uh, I guess one is Domenco. Uh, and then there are a number that actually are using the Domenco eye tracking technology but these are only effectively from what i understand one person at a time it has Correct. to track yes. you yes. and then lock in but sean what you're doing is fundamentally different and not lenticular in any form so there's a uniqueness to what you're doing is that correct or uh it's refractive optic i mean it's it's a couple layers of refractive optics so fundamentally all the stuff is you know a car is a car is a car uh you know the, all of these things have to move light in particular direction um, and so our system doesn't change physics um, in that respect. And so we are, we're directing light in a particular direction with the larger systems, the 65 inch units, 
it's about 100 million points of light that we have an index of all of their direction, intensity, and color of that we update every 60th of a second to effectively update the light field in real time. Um, and I guess the big difference practically from an end viewer's perspective of what we do versus those systems of the past of 10 or 20 years ago, sort of the classic autostereoscopic headset-free TVs is that we produce a lot of views. So we produce about a hundred, up to a hundred different perspectives or one every 0.6 degrees, maybe a degree if it, depending on the system. And then it means you have something that feels a lot more object-like versus it feeling like you're looking at a 3D movie. Um, and that means um, you can look around content. It feels like you're looking through a window versus looking at a display um, or you're looking at a real object that's indistinguishable from a real object at the um, densities we're dealing with now. Um, and you know that is very distinct also from the Domenko systems or Sony put out a really interesting- Sony has one, that's viewer, right. Single viewer track system. Um, and I think those have their place, honestly, you know, um, if you are seated and a single viewer and your application only is going to have one person in the room for the duration of that experience, single viewer systems, um, have their advantages, but a lot of things we do in the world involve more than one person. You know, if we were having this conversation through a looking glass, which people are experimenting with, and my kids ran behind me it would still be working. It wouldn't break the tracking on the system. Um, if we were in a trade show looking at a uh, watch from Bulgari, it would be something that everyone in the trade show could see without worrying about being like in that spot. Multi-user tracks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's the biggest um, sort of practical uh, difference. But ultimately we are controlling the direction of a bunch of little points of light at the end of the day. So you have a factory in Brooklyn. I love that part uh, that is making looking glass. Yeah. Uh, how, what is the output of the factory? Uh, so we have um, our headquarters are in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And then we also have an office in Hong Kong. And so we do things in both of the offices. Uh, and so the output is a lot of software that lets us run these systems. They're all real time. So it's something you can run real time applications in any computer application that you would make for a 2D display that can run in a looking glass in real time. Um, and then we make the hardware kind of between the two locations. We're about 40-ish people or so. And Sean, are you, you know, don't answer what you can't answer, but are you trying to stay like fiercely, like my sister uh, did, lived in Williamsburg for a long time. It's got a whole vibe and she lived in Greenpoint. <laughs> are you trying to stay like Brooklyn forever? Uh, kind of fiercely independent. You're like, hey, Samsung, buy well, me. That's exactly like, what was my next question, right? Because yeah. if, if, if when you start talking about supply chains, it starts to make me think about, you know, things that go into Costco. Hmm. Like in Brooklyn, I think handcrafted guitar pedals, right? right. I play guitar. <laughs> I've got like zillions of these, like, and there's all these cool shops and some guy makes this like germanium transistor fuzz pedal. Are you kind of like that vibe, like DIY, weird? Hollow displays are like, no, no, LG, Samsung, Apple, please buy us. Um, like uh, we're, we're, uh, we're um, I guess, neither of those two things. We're aiming to make Looking Glass into a company that's around 100 years from now. And that wow. ho hopefully is standing alongside the Apples and Samsungs of the world. I know that's a crazily arrogant thing to say, but that's 
what we started the company to do. And that's, I think, the opportunity, especially given how much attention there is on everything that all of us on this call are, are doing in different respects um, in the shift from 2D to 3D, uh, powered by AI systems and so on. So um, that's the goal. Um, and we do make stuff in uh, around the world. So we have different factories, not just in Brooklyn. We have them overseas as well. Um, and so we're producing at scale. The big systems are tens of thousands of dollars. Um, the desktop display, the looking glass portrait is 400 bucks that folks can get. And we're very focused on increasing. That's an eight inch. Yeah, that's the eight inch system about the size of an iPad mini. Um, and so we're, we're very focused at increasing awareness of what we're doing and letting folks use these systems, um, you know, increasingly in their daily lives. Um, but yeah, that's a process. Yeah, it's super interesting. Are you are you comfortable talking about the kind of volumes that you're selling of the little display now? Is it starting to hit a consumer desire point? Because I think Charlie, you said that uh, when you were doing your your talk with Sean beforehand, that you guys still can't keep up with demand, right? I mean, yeah. your 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 demand is stronger than the level of what your company is and what you can supply. It's not a mass produced product yet, although you're moving toward that. Um, and the user applications around the world are actually extraordinarily strong. People might think, oh, it's a very esoteric thing. Nobody really needs this, but there's lots of use cases, museums, industries, uh, artists, and, and, and proof points. And now you're starting to push into the software world of how you use AI with a, uh, a specialized display like this. So I'm just curious, you know, on the, on the littlest display, that's very affordable, a few hundred bucks. Um, yeah. Is it, is it how many, roughly how many people have them in the world, I guess, is the, is the, uh, the raw question here. But yeah, under I, a million, uh, over a million. No. <laughs> it's under a million, um, okay. but but it, it's it's uh, more than you might think, I guess, is what I should say. Um, and um, we're definitely geared up for mass production. We're kind of at the early stages of that now. Um, there's multiple facilities where we're making the products, um, so uh, it's not just um, the bespoke high-end stuff only. So you must be raising capital to do that, right? Hardware is expensive. I mean, these are actually things made of atoms that are yeah. in boxes. Uh, you have you know, inventory to manage. <laughs> always, always raising money. Uh, if anyone's listening. Uh, uh, so any startup, we're always raising. Um, but, um, you know, uh, uh, we are kind of unique in, in this in that we are um, aiming to build this into um, uh, enduring industry. And so we aren't giving this stuff away. We make um, pretty good money on every unit we sell. Um, we're starting to pull in software revenue. We've historically given away all the software for free just to sort of prime the pump. But now we're getting recurring software revenue uh, for some of our applications that are tied with the hardware. And so um, uh, we make pretty decent money on every unit that we sell. And so we don't have to raise as much as someone who might be um, just like giving the systems away at or below cost. Um, Actually, Sean, I think your your light forms thing that you're doing right now is is super interesting. And you're right at the point where, uh, you know, I can imagine you having a, a really interesting light form app store kind of thing where, you know, thousands of developers can make all these things and that you, you know, to collect them, because they're, they're going to start to get to be good, right? AI is hitting that curve where they can start to be good. 
Um, and if the interactions are strong and you start to bring in like branded things from Disney and others, like yeah. there's something actually kind of cool about having um, Ted could close his ears, but like you actually had a pretty sentient SpongeBob sitting on your desk who had a camera could see you and, and, and really was like talking to you throughout the day. Yeah. Um, you know, that that's, that's interesting. I mean, that's much more exciting than my, you know, than an Alexa. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, like you're you're giving life to conversational AI. Imagine the movie cool. Her, where there actually was a her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, but I'm going to say something. Uh, I guess anti-gospel to Sean, but I think one day, light forms will be your business. Hmm. Like what'll happen? I think giant companies are going to make these things and displays that are going to just ultimately require like 20 billion a year or something to keep up, but the light form thing may be the thing that like can transcend the hardware, right? It doesn't matter what hardware you have. Now I'm at the rabbit thing that I'm playing with is like jumping around my room and it's hopping from device to device. So like that may be your, your long-term, if I was like your investor, I would be basically go that that's actually the thing that could really, really high margin. If you can corner that, I mean, Niantic was mucking around with it. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think the experience of like, it's sitting on my desk, it's actually somewhat volumetric light field versus I hold up my phone, it's far away. And then, you know, like, I think you actually have a pretty interesting experience. Um, pretty, by the way, particularly Japan, Korea, and China, I'm sure you know this, but like, there's like tens of millions of people. There's a name for for this kind of um, like geeky guy in Japan who's like a teenager through their early 40s. Yeah. Or even have like, they don't have mates, you know what I mean? Like they're yeah. friends and are anime characters, right? So I wonder... Are you going to have like real success overseas? And then like Jimi Hendrix, you got to go and then you come back to America and you're like, <laughs> but I, yeah. I like I, I'm doing some projects, some some media projects overseas and like China, Japan, South Korea, they're just going oh. nuts for like tens of millions of people have deep relationships with AIs and all that. So I kind of feel like maybe your cult audience that has real scale, you probably, you probably know this, but anyway. I, I mean, um, so I kind of a yes to all of the above. We we even though um you know we make this headset free system, I all of us in the team believe that the future is fully cross-platform. So that idea that this character has to be able to hop between the different things that you use in your day, like day-to-day life. So your phone occasionally, your headset when you're wearing a headset, then into your looking glass when you're in the living room or at your desk. Um, working. That's the future. Um, and it's just like the future that we live in now with um, 2D interfaces. So, you know, I've got my laptop, I've got my phone, I've got my Alexa, and that's how it's going to be for 3D interfaces too. So yeah. uh, definitely that's our focus. And we're always looking for um, the powerful niche audience that can then lead to the um, sort of eventually bigger um, more widespread adoption. And we have a big community in Japan. I was just in Tokyo visiting with um, the folks who run the Looking Glass Club of Tokyo, which is a self-organized club of folks who put together hackathons and whatnot around Looking Glass. We hadn't been able to meet for three years because of the pandemic um, shutdowns, but now we can. And so there's a new excitement that's brewing around all of this stuff. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you talk about the the idea of, of technology permanence, right? That yeah. sort of hops because we are mostly in a world where people have multiple technology devices. And if you look at what the computer companies 
put billions of dollars of resources into year over year is allowing this seamless transition from yeah. one device to the next device. You pick up your device, you've still got your email, it's caught up to where you are, you've got your text, you've got your socials, you've got everything that kind of touches you and it just moves seamlessly from place to place, right? So like if you're watching YouTube on your phone and you have a big TV, which is just another big giant phone, right? On your wall and you've signed into YouTube, it's just gonna remember all of the things you watched and, and feed you more. So the idea of that, there's another wave of this that's coming with even more advanced displays, wearable displays, auto stereoscopic displays, true 3D light field displays. You know, this is years and years in the making, right? Oh um, yeah. Oh yeah, we've all, everyone's been, this has been, a dream for a hundred years, if you go way back to early, you know, Lumiere brothers sort of dreams, but um, it's definitely been worked on very aggressively over 30 or 40 years. And so now we're kind of um, just all, almost at the point where all of this stuff is coming together. Um, I, I hope it's now and not 10 years from now. You never know about those. I, I'm going to lobby that there's a certain set of SpongeBob characters, including the snail. That we really okay. want to see on that this. Would be Ted does not have to. There's also does not have to Star respond. Wars, Star Wars in-world demo where you know you could yeah. ask three CPO any question about the Star Wars universe. Yeah, actually, have you talked to in-world, Sean? Like that. That's probably a good match. And Gata yeah. is probably a good connection for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've talked directly to the in-world folks, but we're familiar with their work. Um, and fans of what they're doing for in-game character. Um, and so we're, we're kind of, um, because of what we've built in this um, currently like kind of very niche um, part of this whole shift to 3D universe, um, we uh, have the benefit of being able to work with a lot of different partners. And so, um, yeah, excited about some potential things that might happen there. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Um, thanks for sharing a half hour with us, Sean. Great to see yeah, you again. You. And um, I'm going to let you go. And the three of us are going to do a quick listener mail. We're trying to have yeah, a little wrap up listener mail moment. I love new, it. Huge yeah. segment uh, where we Bye, take your questions. See you later. Bye. Okay. So here we go with the. So list. excited. We're continuing to do this. Uh, yeah. Let me find it. <laughs> uh, here we go. So we actually have listener mails like Dave yeah. Letterman or something. Yeah. Question of the week from John Gress. A lot of media is focused on the business side on hardware and software, and your show is by far the best uh, for this, in my humble opinion. Well, thank you for saying that, John. Flattery will get you everywhere. Our focus is content is king. There's a lot of the same old, same old out there content-wise. So question I'd like to hear your spin on. Here we go. What use case for XR can you imagine or you would love to see that you feel could be revolutionary and life-changing for people that you have not seen approached yet? Wow. That's Good question, question, right? Why? Yeah, this yeah, this yeah. could be a half hour answer. Yeah. You know, I, well, here's, here's the beginning of the answer while you guys are thinking of the answer. The thing about our industry that we like to talk about and that the focus of this show is, is that what we often are referring to and watching, just like today's guest about Looking Glass, is the continual evolution of visual technology, right? That, and obviously audio visual, if you want to talk about, but we mostly talk about the visual experience and then the stuff that, that is ancillary to that, right? The haptics and the audio and so forth and so on. So 
I would say it's going to be really hard for us to find a totally and completely unique use case. I would almost kind of angle the question towards we're studying, and Charlie, you and I talk about this all the time in terms of industrial value-based value use cases for XR. We are constantly seeing value points of bringing things into a spatial environment, right, for almost every industry. So I'm on the board of a big um, cancer research um, center in Florida, and you know, we do a lot of pro bono stuff, and I brought virtual reality, mixed reality to that, right? We brought virtual reality, mixed reality into the entertainment sector in all forms, and there are certainly new forms of entertainment that I'm personally experimenting with in my job and the world is experimenting with. Um, I think, you know, we're looking at kind of every piece of the puzzle that very often lives in some sort of 2D display plane today, right? Doctors in a surgical room, people in a, in a factory, people on a desktop, people doing, you know, day-to-day -day work on their computer and constantly asking the question of, we have two eyes, they're up here. How do we build devices and bring that into a world that starts to feel more real than a two-dimensional display? So I think that's the broad answer. Did I give you guys enough time to uh, come up with a more like, what is the thing that's never been done before answer that we all want to see? Charlie, I'll go, I'll go I last. Go, I would go to uh, something that I've been saying a lot lately, which is, when I look at, <clears throat> when I saw uh, AI last year for the first time, really, um, I thought I had one of those mosaic browser moments where you say, oh my God, this is going to change a lot of things. And of course, you know, when I saw the mosaic browser, I thought, oh, well, how are you going to organize all this information? Maybe there should be a search engine or a list. Uh, that's the first most obvious one right? Uh, you know, ChatGPT helped me make money. <laughs> but right. uh, but uh, I think we're just at the beginning of the kind of changes as we talked about at the top of the show. Now let's go to XR. I never had that feeling about XR. Um, I always felt that XR was going to need a jolt of electricity from something like AI to have the relevance and the intimacy and the context that it needs to be truly useful to me. I don't need to, it to show me YouTube videos about how to do a recipe. You know, that's a sort of nice to have if I'm wearing them anyway, but it's not a reason to go through the friction of, of owning glasses. I also think that uh, one of the things that Apple is doing right uh, in the Vision Pro is this idea that not every app, in fact, most apps are not going to be 3D. You may be in a 3D environment when you're interacting with them, but they're, you know, you want to take money out of your checking account or, you know, I owe you, I have to Venmo money, some Venmo you some cash. There is no reason for that to be a 3D experience unless it makes it better and faster. And so that's really what I'm waiting to see. Can AI combine with XR to create something that really improves our daily lives enough to make, to go through the friction of wearing them? Uh, which is not inconsiderable. Um, you know, they have to be charged. They, you know, continue to have other, you know, weight issues. So we're a ways away, but I think when we get there, then it starts not to be about the hardware and, and about the software that runs it. Uh, and AI is going to have a big role in that. And I'm really waiting to see that. I think that really could be exciting. Roni, after you go, I actually, as uh, I had a little time to think about it and, and you brought it up, could you spark something about the Apple Vision Pro that I'll go after Roni goes that I do think is going to make an impact. And while it's not 100% new, it is a dream that is becoming uh, potentially reality now. So I've got it in my head now. 
I got the answer to the question, I think. I'm going to give you two answers. Um, one will irritate people because uh, I am I am working on, you guys know I'm working on two new startups and I, I'm not going to talk about that piece of, of XR that I think is actually quite valuable because I don't want to share that right now. Um, but I, I would say, I think there's some really interesting things that could happen with it. That's one. The other one is philosophical, uh, which I think is a point a lot of people uh, lose. I actually had a discussion with a friend of mine uh, who's a who's a who's a big uh, investor in tech, and we, we it's like he's he's um, he's from India and he's a Hindu. Uh, so the the discussion was basically this: that we are there's inside out, um, like philosophy and spirituality, and there's outside in. So so very quickly, the the idea of XR. Uh, one thing that it really does that, that could expose people to is, is, is a concept called the Maya, the, the illusion of, of reality. And that is a fairly deep philosophical thing that the outside world and how it connects with you and how do you construct it and all that. Uh, there's, there's a whole philosophical thing, which we're not going to do now. Maybe we'll do an episode one day. Um, but there, there's a lot of the world that's like inside out, right? They, they have an inside view of the world and a spirituality and then uh xr to them is like meditating or it, it's just another validation of this concept of the ma of, of the maya but his take is in the us and a lot of the western world we're very we're very the opposite we're outside in right the we're just reflecting the mirror world of the outside and and, and the inside we're becoming more hollow right it's just becoming addicted to social media and games and things without the development of a separate consciousness and spiritual life that seems this is not this is very binary it's, it's much more nuanced than that but the fact that like people get lost on instagram and tiktok and these things and there's like the inside is just is just hollowing out falling apart it's because we have such an outside in view right it's not an inside out view which has like this like sense of like the infinite expanse of the world and the universe and and a sense of that the reality around you is a bit of an illusion um, XR really can serve that philosophical purpose, but it's not right. It's it, like what's happening is is companies are much more focusing on that outside in uh, philosophy. It's a whole it's a whole a thread we can go on. But if you really think deeply about it, like you know what what does a Tibet, Tibetan monk do and sort of like meditate on for decades? It's to sort of reach the kind of clarity in theory XR shows you right away. The, the illusion of reality, instantly you could see that with XR, but that's just going right past almost everyone and they're getting lost in it. So anyway, that was probably not the answer you guys were expecting, but. You know, no, it's actually a really, it's a really good answer and it actually kind of leads into a, a more directed uh, version of this as I was thinking about this, this question and answer. Uh, you know, that idea of the, the human experience, right? And understanding what technology has done to effectively hollow that human experience out is really interesting and probably something we should all be talking about way more. As someone who's gone through kind of a life-changing event with my heart recently, you know, you get a little more philosophical. So as you're talking about it, I'm like, yep, lived it, been there, and kind of like continue to be there. But in specific answer to the question, I'm very curious if you guys would agree with this. One of the things that got a little bit glossed over in all of the features of the Apple Vision device is this idea of spatial capture of memories and important events, that they have all these cameras that are used for all these different purposes, and they're building the first potential consumer level spatial or spatial-ish kind of capture. So the idea, you know, the thing that always comes to mind is, 
capturing your baby's first steps, the first time it walked, right? In, in, in something that is a retrievable memory, a, a, a holographic memory, as it were, capturing a really important speech, a really important moment, a really important conversation, a commencement speech, a keynote, something like that, in a way that isn't just either a 2D or even a 3D capture, starts to become a spatial capture. And then we start to build spatial memories from that. I think that is extraordinarily groundbreaking. And it's something that has been a dream for creators for millennium now. The idea of, you know, science fiction movies kind of reflect on this all the time. The idea of, boy, if we could go back in time and have Lincoln's speech, like actually see it, actually feel it, not have to recreate it in a game engine, but really saw the real thing, right? So we of course have 2D of all of that over many generations of our lives. But what Apple showed for the first time, and yes, a very exotic consumer price point today, is the beginnings of that. And yeah, it's going to be a little weird to wear a headset next to somebody's wedding, you know, but but the idea is that's going to change form factor. And eventually we're going to get to a whole new form of capturing important moments in our lives. And I think maybe that's the thing that hasn't happened yet. I think there will be AI trained uh, on our personalities and our mannerisms and our memories so that our ancestors can converse with us will probably appear ter terribly uh, nuanced and old fashioned in the way we talk will probably strike them as very strange. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, they would be able to go, then you could, then you could write a movie about, um, you know, a kid who has an adventure with his holographic grandfather who right. really isn't alive, uh, but it, you know, it's an AI simulating them. Anyway, uh, that was actually a Steven Spielberg movie, I think. Okay. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> And and I think it was called AI. Yeah, it was called AI, which is kind of a remarkable. <laughs> well, that's a great suggestion for weekend viewing and a great spot to wrap up our show. Uh, always great to hang out with you guys on a Friday morning. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll be back at you next week. Where to come.